we're going to uh, share in a time of communion today. Um, I'm going to do something different today, something unique um, in the way that we're doing it, in the way that, that I'm going to do it. Um, I'm going to tag team uh, in the preaching, actually. Uh, I want to talk about the three elements of communion. Now, I know that uh, you all are just getting a cup there, and you're, you're saying, but wait a minute, there's just two in here. There's the uh, bread, and then there's the juice. So what's the third? Hang on, I'll tell you all about it. But in the midst of that, uh, after these guys get done, we'll kick in. So if you want to go ahead and look in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 23 through 32 in just a few moments. I want to wait until they've got everything out. I'm just going to kind of give you. And then I'm going to talk about the first element that we're going to talk about. Then I'm going to tag team Josh in. He's going to talk about the second element. Then he's going to tag team me, and I'm going to come back and talk to you about the third element. And then after we've explained all three of the elements to you, then we're going to partake in communion together, hopefully in a spirit of uh, holiness and a spirit of love for what God has done for us. So we're going to be looking at those three elements this morning. So as they are almost finished, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you've got your Bibles open, uh, that's where we'll be turning to in just a couple of minutes. So I want to just make sure everybody is, is served that's here in the room. I didn't give them to you at the beginning as you were coming in because I figured you'd be playing with them or lose them. This way, you shouldn't lose them or, or any of that before we need them. So, all right, fellas, make sure you get one as well. Jeff, just keep that back there with you if you see anybody else come in. Uh, all right, if you have your Bibles open with you this morning, if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's stand together as we honor the reading of the Word of the Lord. I want to read to you this passage that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church as he spoke to them about this issue of the three elements of communion. All right, starting in verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, that which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, The cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of this bread and drink of this cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, and that we should not be condemned 
with the world. Father, we thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul as he gave the communion to the church and shared with them the very foundation and formulation of it and shared with us the three different elements of communion. And so, Father, as we break open the bread of life today, speak from uh, uh, it today, we pray that the Holy Spirit would take the words in which Josh and I shared today, that they would uh, sink into the depths of our hearts and that we would hear from you, O Lord, and be moved and respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. So, let me begin this morning as to what we are doing here. The Lord's Supper, the communion, is a meal in which that we receive. Just as, they, as we take the elements and receive them into our bodies, we also have taken the Lord Jesus and received him into our lives. But the Lord's Supper is more than just a meal. It is a memorial. When we share in the bread and the cup, we have not only the responsibility of receiving, but also of remembering. One, on the night before Jesus was executed, he gathered all of his disciples for one final meal together. It would be their last time together before he was hauled away by the Jewish and Roman authorities to be crucified. Around the table, he shared the Jewish uh, Passover meal with his closest friends. Then Jesus took the bread that was left on the table and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the Apostle Paul's recording of the institution of the Lord's Supper, twice he reminds us that Jesus said, In remembrance of me. The word remembrance means much more than recalling something or someone from the past. To remember something is to make vivid, to make real, to recall and make a, a, a contemporary the, uh, the, the reality of the deed. In this case, it is a remembering of Jesus' words, life, deeds, his death, that brings life to us who are believers. Because Jesus... Of Jesus, we have the, uh, been redeemed. We are redeemed and we shall be redeemed fully when he returns. The Lord's Supper commemorates for us that very fact. To help us in our memory, Jesus chose two simple elements, two simple everyday things as uh, the way in which we would commemorate this time. Two things that are symbols that are necessary for life itself, bread and wine. The simplest of elements, when they are associated with the greatest friend and savior we will ever know, they become powerful mementos. They stir up emotions, memories in our hearts, like looking at an intimate photo album does, or a well-read and worn letter from a friend who is no longer with us. This remembrance entails the use of tangible elements, bread and wine, or in our case, bread and juice. It isn't enough simply to say, I remember. The elements of the bread and the wine are given to stir in our hearts and in our minds the very reality that we know. 
That though we were not there, we know that He died for us. He shed His blood for us. The physical action of eating and drinking is designed to remind us that we spiritually ingest and depend upon Jesus and the saving benefits of His life, His death, His resurrection. Just as food and drink are essential to our physical bodies for their existence, so is the blessing and benefits that come to us through the body and the blood of Christ. They are paramount for our spiritual flourishment. You might be asking then, preacher, you've talked about two of the elements. What is the third element that you keep speaking about? Well, I'm glad you asked. If I had a mirror this morning and I was tempted to bring one just to shine up and let you look into it, I don't have, so I'm just simply going to say, you and I are the third element of communion. And I'll tell you how that we play in part in the message. But just remember, we have the bread... We have the juice, and we have the saints of God with us today. So we're going to talk about that. So I'm going to begin by sharing with you a little bit about the first element. The first element is the precious body of Christ. My friends, I want you to understand that when we come to the Lord's table, we are to remember the precious body of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. So when eating of this bread is to represent the Savior's broken body for us. The bread is also symbolic of the words of life which He spoke into our life. If we continue to eat this true bread, the Bible says, that comes down from heaven, we will have imparted to us eternal life in God's family. Jesus referred to himself many ways, but here is one in which he called himself the bread of life in John chapter 6 and verse 51. And he said, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the, the bread that, which I give to you is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Eating this flesh, no, we're not eating flesh, we're eating the symbolicness of ingesting his broken body into our lives. By eating this flesh symbolically means that we are remembering what Jesus said. The words that I speak unto you are spirit and they are of life. In verse 53 and through 56 of, uh, of John's gospel in chapter 6, he explains that both the eating of the flesh and the drinking of the blood are required if we are to have eternal life. Listen, my friends, we cannot just accept the brokenness of Jesus' body as the atonement for our sin without accepting and receiving the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We must have the both in order to experience the eternal life in which Jesus offers unto us. So once we come to that place, once we reconcile His body and His blood are that which reconcile us with God. The process does not stop here. Once we have been reconciled with the Lord, we must also feed upon His flesh. His words are given to gain eternal life. Still, this is not enough. 
We must continue to repeat this process as long as we shall live. That's what the Apostle Paul, that's what the Lord Jesus was saying. As often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me, reminding us and reminding ourselves that this is a process to keep continually growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ until our Savior comes or until he calls us home. I want to talk to you first about the breaking of the bread. The Bible has this expression, breaking of bread. It uses it in many ways. One of the ways is described as a shared meal. If a person eats alone, he does not need to break the bread because there is nobody to share it with. However, If you are eating with another person, the bread loaf must be broken into pieces so that everyone who is at the table can have some. The early church was described as having everything in common in Acts chapter 2. They studied doctrine together, they prayed together, they ate together. And Acts chapter 2 calls this common meal the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread was also used in the Bible in another way, and perhaps a more important way. It was used in a symbolic way to refer to our relationship with Jesus Christ. At that time, the Lord spent with his disciples eating the Passover meal. He gave to them an institution of the church, but yet an element in which we would bring in an ordinance that we would do in the church to remember what he had done for us. The breaking of the bread. The Bible tells us that he broke the bread and gave it to each of them. He called the bread, my body, which is broken for you. He instructed them to break the bread together and to eat the, and drink the wine together, which or symbolizes the new covenant in his blood through Christ. As a way of regularly remembering what Jesus has done for us. What a great reminder that we did not save ourselves, but he saved us because he shed his body and his blood on our behalf. Listen, my friends, every time that we partake of this, it is a reminder that we cannot do anything to redeem ourselves, but he has done everything that we need for redemption. So the breaking of the bread is symbolic to tell us that Jesus said, I'm doing this for you. And when we break bread... And share it, we are remembering that each of us is able to live and grow spiritually because his body was broken on the cross for us. But then the Bible talks about the breaking of his body. There's the breaking of the bread that is the symbolic means. But then Jesus mentioned that this is symbolic of the actual fact that my body will be broken for you. Now, the breaking of the unleavened bread during the Passover ritual provides an additional and external important principle that we need to be reminded of. Since it is part of the annual ceremony uh, that the Jews partake of at Passover, we need to be reminded at least once a year that the true bread from heaven, 
which we must eat in order to live, was broken for us. First, the question comes to mind, how was Christ broken? How was his body broken for you and I? John writes that the soldiers broke the legs of the two criminals that were hanging on either side of Jesus the day that he was crucified. However, it says to us that that not a bone upon his body was broken. And that instead of breaking his legs, he was already dead. So all that they did to prove his death was to pierce his flesh with a spear. The Bible tells us not one bone broken in Jesus' body as it was prophesied. Christ's body however, was broken, but not by the breaking of bones, but by the breaking of the skin. Besides the spear that spierced his side, the metal spikes that uh, were nailed in his wrist and in his feet to hold him to the cross, he was subjected to a most severe beating and whipping before the cross. This latter torture foretold in Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14 made him nearly unrecognizable. The Bible tells us that his body would, be, would bore the, uh, the multitude of welts and skin lacerations and open wounds spilling his blood over the entirety of his body all the way to the ground. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5 reminds us. As it expands upon the type of scourging in which our Lord would take that you and I deserve, but yet He stood there for us. And Isaiah reminds us, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. A stripe is simply another word for a stroke or a blow made with a rod or a lash. This is how our Lord's body was broken for you and I. It was ripped asunder for you and I. He took the beating in which we deserve. He took the lashes which you and I should have done for our sin, but He took it upon Himself, paid that penalty for your sin and mine. We cannot but deeply be embarrassed this morning, ashamed that we should stand here today benefiting from His beating, His suffering, His stripes, especially when we consider that in God's eyes, He did not deserve it, but we did. In God's eyes, we broke His body. Listen to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But it is prophesied that by our stripes He received, we should be healed. Aren't you glad today that by His stripes we have the healing, we have the forgiveness, we have the grace of God upon us today? When we eat of the broken body, the unleavened bread at Passover, 
we as baptized members must ask ourselves, have I been healed by his stripes? Am I the one who possessed the healing of Christ? Do I really believe his promise of eternal life for me through his death upon the cross? Am I in the process of being healed today? Do I really believe he has promised me everlasting life? If we cannot answer these questions positively, then it may mean that we have yet to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, and we need to do that today. We may not be discerning the Lord's body as he properly wants us to. You see, discerning the Lord's body means that we recognize our personal guilt for Christ's suffering. It means that we acknowledge our transgression of God's law, that it was our sin that put Him on the cross. It was our sin that allowed Him to be scourged and beaten for us. Discerning the Lord's body means that we are to recognize that we have been forgiven by His atonement, and that we are to go and sin no more. Otherwise, we crucify Christ again and again, and we bring to shame His payment for our sin. That, my friends, is the body of Christ that was broken for you. But in the midst of the body of Christ that was broken for you, There is a second element that is poured out for you as well, and Josh is going to come and speak to that this morning. That's really loud. Um... I'm going to speak on the blood, as Steve said, and I'm going to read from John chapter 2, from the wedding of Cana. And I want to talk about weddings, water, and wine, and what they mean for the blood of Christ. And so, in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we read, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
I'm going to move fast this morning, but it's important we understand a bit more about weddings, water, and wine from a biblical perspective in the context of our scripture. Now, on weddings, when a woman and a man betrothed themselves to one another, they would hold a celebratory feast that lasted no less than a week, sometimes even as long as a fortnight. It's 14 days, if you're wondering. It was the responsibility of the groom to provide everything necessary for the wedding party, which meant it was his responsibility to provide food, shelter, festivities, and wine. The communities represented in Galilee and most of the biblical world were very close-knit communities. So everyone was invited to celebrate the good news because everyone knew everyone and they were all supportive of each other. Should the food or wine run out at the wedding party, the groom as well as his family would suffer social disgrace. The newly married couple would be looked down upon and the failure to provide adequately would never be forgotten. Furthermore, the groom and his family may even suffer financial hardship because a failure like this could result in a fine. And on wine, wine was a common drink originating in the Old Testament times. Wine was symbolic of internal joy. It brought gladness, warmth, sometimes a sense of relief from what may sometimes seem hopeless. But more important, it was used for medicinal purposes. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 to not drink water exclusively, but a little wine for the sake of his stomach and frequent ailments. This was because water in the ancient world was polluted and carried diseases. Wine, because of fermentation, acted as a disinfectant and would relieve common illnesses due to impure water. Wine was watered down always for two reasons. The first reason was because, like I said, good quality drinking water was difficult to come by since they didn't have any type of purification process. The wine would help clean the water because of that fermentation. The second reason was to dilute the wine to the point where people were able to drink without becoming intoxicated and still get adequate amounts of water. And what about water? Water in biblical times represented many different things. Water could be used symbolically, metaphorically, and of course physically. Clean drinking water was very difficult to come by. In the Old Testament, it was symbolic of judgment. We've been talking about the global flood in youth for a few weeks now. The water in Egypt turned to blood, judgment. The prophet Isaiah withheld rain some years on account of God's word, judgment. But it was also used to represent a blessing of God. Jesus told the woman at the well that if she would drink the water he gives, she would never thirst again and it would become a well of living water springing up into eternal life. And it was also used for ceremonial uh, purification. This is why there were six stone water pots here at the wedding in Cana. They needed that many gallons of water to clean, cleanse themselves. And a ceremonial cleansing was all that this water could provide. They're having a good time. They're celebrating the betrothal of the bride and groom, eating, drinking, laughing, enjoying each other's company, and then they run out of wine. The mother of Jesus says, hey, they're out. Shame and reproach, social disgrace will befall them. They're out. Whether or not Mary knew what Jesus could do is irrelevant. The, these people were desiring more. They were desiring something better. The wine's out. So Jesus, in perfect display of his holiness and things to come, looks at the water pots used for purification and tells them, fill those with water. But Jesus... We've already purified ourselves. We don't need more water. We need wine. 
we're already clean. We don't need them to be filled with purification water. Fill them with water, he says. Take those pots that you use for purification, fill them with water. Those, those stone pots made by man that you use to clean yourself with. And then he changes that same water into wine, but not just any wine, the purest, cleanest, most potent wine. And here's what Jesus is effectually saying with this, his first miracle and manifestation of his glory. The things you think can clean you, cannot. Ritual sacrifice will not cleanse you. Ceremonial washing will not cleanse you. Sacrificing the blood of bulls and goats will not cleanse you. Your works will not cleanse you. You need something more. And even though you desire more and better wine, I'm going to give you a better way to wash your sins away because just as Isaiah reminds us in chapter 59, your iniquities, my iniquities, have made a separation between you and your God. And if our sins have hidden his face from us so that he does not hear. Jesus says only the wine of the new covenant can cleanse you, but it cannot be watered down dirty or diluted wine. It has to be pure, clean, and perfect wine. But when you drink of this wine, you're no longer condemned. You no longer suffer shame or reproach. You're no longer dirty before a holy God. You will be clean. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed by blood, but without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Mine and yours or the blood of Christ. How blessed are those that are covered by the blood. You will have forgiveness of your sins. And this is not something to be taken lightly because our sins separate us from God. When we commit habitual sin, it separates us from God. It destroys unity. It destroys purity. It separates us from God. But by the blood, we will be forgiven and our sins will be cleansed. You will not be put to shame. And here's the most glorious part about that. Is you and I will be invited to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. Matthew 26. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he, said, he gave it to them, saying... Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Revelation 19. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. What a glorious remembrance of what Christ has done for us. By the power of the Spirit, we have been covered effectually, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, slain before the foundation of the world, and invited to the marriage supper by the only one, the only one, the only one whose blood can make atonement for my sin and your sin, Jesus, who is called Christ. I'm going to read these familiar lyrics to you. What can wash away my sin? 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me and you white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this I plead, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope, all my peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all of my righteousness and your righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, this is a serious thing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can ever make any of us right before God. It is not something to be taken lightly. It's difficult, I know. Because we weren't there watching him get beat and ripped apart and nailed to a cross. But blessed are those who don't see and still believe. Amen? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The precious body of Jesus Christ. We have the precious blood of Christ. And the third element that I want to talk about today is the precious saints of Christ. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and 24, we're reminded of what the Bible tells us here. For I have received of the Lord that which also I deliver unto thee, that the Lord Jesus that same night in which he had been betrayed took bread, and he had given it thanks, he broke it, and he take it, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on down through these verses, the Apostle Paul reminds the church that we need to be very, very careful that we do not take the Lord's Supper unworthily. Taking the Passover, the, the, the meal before us unworthily is wrong main point of the entirety of what Paul is writing here was not only for us to remember, not only for us to know the, the brokenness of the body of Christ and the spilt blood of Jesus, but that we as the saints of God need to come in presence of God correctly. So very quickly, I want to just share with you a couple of thoughts here to tie it all together. In these verses that partake to the Passover symbolize that there is a way in which we are to discern the Lord's body. The Apostle Paul tells us how to discern the Lord's body in these same verses. And what he says is this is what it means for us to take unworthily or to take worthily before the Lord. What does Paul mean when he says do not take the Lord's Supper unworthily? In chapter 11, we see several examples. Very quickly, let me give them to you. We find that the early church, in taking the, the Lord's Supper unworthily, Paul addresses in these verses in a manner that causes division. 
In verses 18 and 19 and 22, he said that what you are doing is causing diversion among the church. You're causing a a strife among the body of believers. That causes us to take the Lord's Supper unworthily. Another thing that he says in verse 21, in a manner of self-indulgence. In other words, he says, don't do it all just for you. It's not just about you getting your fair share. And then in a manner which is not in remembrance of Him. My friends, if your mind is anywhere else this morning except for on Jesus Christ, that is an unworthy manner in which to partake of the Lord's Supper. And then in verse 26, he talks about a manner that does not proclaim His death. And then another in a manner that does not or or does uh, not discern or honor the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So if we're not doing these things, then it would seem as though that we are taking the Lord's Supper worthily. But of course, let me remind you that Paul's list here is not exhaustive, and that there are other things that we might find ourselves doing in an unworthy manner that we need to to look at. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in verse 28... In the very next verse, he says, But let every man examine himself, and let them eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We should examine our hearts and repent of our sins. There should be a moment of time in which we stop and we think and we search and we ask, God, is there any unrepentant sin in my life? Is there anything that I need you to bring to mind that I can ask forgiveness for? And then he says, take communion. Now for those of you that might be afraid that perhaps like me, we don't always remember everything that we have done and maybe we have forgotten something that we have offended the Lord for. And maybe out of fear you think, well, I can't remember, so what do I do? Just not partake? No. What we need to do is just confess our general sinfulness and tell the Lord that whatever I have done, if I have forgotten it, remind me, I want your forgiveness. My friends, we need to be careful that we are not taking our sin lightly. Then one of the two criminals who were on the cross blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us as well. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not uh, even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we have received the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Assuredly, I say to you today that you shall be with me in paradise. The Bible uses a couple of words here, malefactors, which literally means evildoers, those who commit an offense against the law. We need to judge ourselves, the Bible says, like this repentant uh, malefactor did. Like him, we need to acknowledge our past sinful deeds We need to demonstrate our acknowledgement of our iniquity, not by words alone, but by quietly accepting the punishment which he had brought upon himself by his own evil doing. Discerning Christ's body must include a serious acknowledgement that we are sinners, 
we made his sacrifice necessary. Had we all lived obedient lives as Jesus did, his suffering would not have been required. His body would not have been broken. His blood would not have been spilt for our sin. Herbert Armstrong made a discerning statement, and I wanted you to hear this about the Lord's body. God's laws are the greatest gift He has ever given us. Of course, you may say Jesus Christ and His death on the cross is the greatest gift that God has ever given us. But we wouldn't have had, He wouldn't have had to go uh, to the cross if we hadn't have broken God's law. And actually, if you can understand it, my friend, the reason for Christ's death on the cross is merely to wipe out the penalty that you and I incurred so that we can come to God and He can bring, begin to be obedient to His law so that we can be reconciled to Him and receive His Spirit, which is the love of God shed abroad upon our hearts. The only love that will fulfill this law so we can obey the law that God has set because it takes the love of God by the Holy Spirit of God in order to obey the law and to enjoy all of His blessings. Let me close and remind you before we go to the Lord's table this morning. For those of you Christians here today that might feel unworthy of taking communion before the Lord because of your sin and sinful past, let me just remind you that Communion is made for the Christian because communion is for the sinner. For Christians who are sinners, it is not that communion makes sinning okay. The Christian should always war against sin in our flesh. But Christians should not withhold themselves from the Lord's table. If they are trying to repent of their sins, even though we may still be struggling to gain complete victory. This is certainly not the means, what it means to take communion in an unworthy manner. It is for you and I to struggle. That is, in that struggle, we are vindicating our position in Christ Jesus that it is not what I can do for me, but it is what He does for me every day that I depend upon His work and His grace and His blood and His brokenness so that I might come before the Lord. Knowing that, my friends, I invite you this morning to join me at the Lord's table. If you have got your cup with you, you'll need this. Now, let me just give you a little heads up. There are two tabs one is a little clear one and then another one below it. The clear one will take the bread out. If you want to go ahead and do that while I am preparing here, that night when the Lord went before His disciples, the Bible tells us that He took upon the time to take the elements and to display before them not only what he was saying, but to show them what he was saying. He took the bread, 
complete as it was. And he broke it. He ripped it. And he began to rip it. And he began to rip it. And he began to rip it. And he gave to all that were there and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which will be broken for you. If you've got that little piece of bread out, I will do the same. I don't want you to break it. I simply want you to hold it and just think about the fact that his body was broken for you. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the brokenness of the body of Christ. So by his stripes, I am healed. Lord, my brokenness has been made whole through your brokenness. Lord, thank you for what you've done for me on Calvary's cross. Now, Lord, let this be a symbol of how that we have ingested your body into our lives so that we might walk with you in newness of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Take the bread. After the breaking of the bread, the Bible tells us that the Lord took the cup. And I don't know that if he took a pitcher and he filled a cup or if the cup was already full, but I wanted to do something today to remind you of what Jesus did for us. He took it, and before his disciples, perhaps pouring out all of it into the cup. You see them last drops? One drop of the precious blood of Jesus Christ would have been sufficient cover the sins of the world. But he didn't just give one drop of his blood for you and I. He poured it all out. He gave us everything that he had. He said, I gave you my body and now I give you my blood. He said, as often as you drink this cup, remember, it is my blood that brings forth the forgiveness of sin. It is my blood that cleanses you from all unrighteousness. It is His blood, sacrificed for us, so that we might partake together. Father, thank You for the precious blood of Jesus Christ. For Lord, my blood, the blood of goats and animals, could not do what God did for me and for all those who believe on Calvary's cross. So it is today that as we come to be reminded that, Lord, we are thankful today for the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I stand before you, forgiven, cleansed, pure, holy, not because of me, 
but because of you. May we receive your blood as a token, as a symbol, as a reminder that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hear us now, O God, we pray. In Jesus' name, you may partake. It is when we gather as his children around the Lord's table that we, as the third element of communion, take part in recognizing what Jesus Christ did for us. If you are here today and you have never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, knowing that His body was broken for you and His blood was spilled so that you could have a a repentance of sin, that you could have forgiveness and restoration before a holy God, then I share with you today, do not start your Thanksgiving week without first coming to know the one in which we need to be most thankful for, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please do not leave today without seeing myself or Josh or Tom. We would love to tell you what the Bible says about what it takes to know Jesus as your Savior. May God bless you. May this time of communion be a reminder for